Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome to another episode. At some point in the recent past, Cody and I had a conversation that we want to bring to you today about young players and um, players that have a lot of primacy and high usage and offensive load, and they put up big stats. But those players before uh, have a history of uh, being complicated and sometimes uh, being overrated by their big stats. And so that's a conversation that we recorded the other day. We want to bring that to you. But it is, an, Cody, it's a little uncomfortable. It's a delicate subject. Uh, I had a lot going on that day. I listened back to it. I just didn't feel like I personally handled it with the de- delicacy that it needed. So I wanted to uh, introduce that topic and sort of couch it in the, uh, I think, in the appropriate way. We got into the conversation talking about Cade Cunningham and Paolo Boncaro, as you'll hear. And I think what's lost in the conversation we recorded, because Cody and I talked about this a ton uh, before actually recording that conversation, is we both think these guys are pretty good players right now. Um, And I think if you listen to some of our past stuff, we think they might be very good players somewhere in that range. So just keep this in mind that we're not talking about players who are the 232nd best player in the league. The conversation is really inspired by, is Cade Cunningham an all-star right now? Is Paolo Boncaro an all-star right now? Are these top 25, top 30 players? And there's a big difference, especially when you have a lot on your plate and you're carrying a ton uh, as these guys are in their situations between being like the 28th or 30th best player in the league and the 52nd best player in the league or the 67th best player in the league. We'll see where they get when we do our sub all-star teams. But, um, you know, that goes back to when we did our top 25 under 25 draft. A lot of people were asking about those two players in particular because of their roles. And again, whether you want to take them 13th or 17th in that draft or wherever we ended up taking them, that isn't really the point of the conversation. The point of the conversation was like, some people want them to go 8th or 7th or 6th or something like that. And that's what we're really talking about. Cade Cunningham, great passer. Um, you and I both picked him really high in the in the uh, top 20, top redraft that we did of younger players. And, and Paolo Bancaro himself can pass. So there's a lot of good things about players like this. And I just didn't want that to get lost in the complexity of the conversation. Yeah, like uh, like Maverick, you know, in Top Gun Maverick, just trying, trying to take off perfectly so that you can get <laughs> over the, the mountain range and, you know, get the clearance that you need. I think this is a really tough landing to make. And like you said, like, there's a point in here you're going to hear. There's like a stat salad that I serve up that's quite quite dense and in retrospect could have been communicated a lot more clearly but also the fact that like i think we're saying the things that you're saying but also this idea that like maybe some players could shift to a different role and actually see more success and i think that's part of the argument i was making as well so i think there's a lot of signals going on and i don't want anyone to walk away being like ben and cody hate these two guys because i really don't think that was the intention and I, i didn't want it to be as negative as i think it might seem like it is yeah, yeah. I think um, when you remember something like the Magic are actually getting outscored by three points per game with Paolo on the court this year, they're 11 points worse per 100 when he's on the court. If that was a situation that was more like Cade's, 
I think it amends itself or lends itself to a more balanced view of a really young player like that who's got all these areas to grow into versus like he's winning NBA player of the week and are the Magic going to be a top four seed and should he be a shoe in for all-star? That's kind of where we were coming from. Um, so if you have anything else to say, yeah, I think without further ado, we will now present to you that episode and uh, here it is. One of the things I've always tried to do, Cody, is learn from the audience and take uh, information from the audience. And it's hard because there's so much of it, but try to bake in certain ideas because a a lot of you have really interesting thoughts and feedback and things like that. And you actually started a conversation that in a way I've wanted to have for years and I didn't know it, but it was after our top 25, under 25 draft. And every year we do this show, we've done it twice, but... Uh, on, on formerly we've done it twice, but we've had the conversation for multiple years. And every time it happens, there's always this sort of controversy or this divide around players with higher primacy, a higher usage, a higher load on a poor team and what that means. And sometimes the guy's on a poor team and he's just playing great and there's no controversy. And you're just like, I love that dude. We all agree. We love that dude. He's an all-star already. He's a superstar, whatever. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about typically players who are putting up big raw stats, but have other indicators that are very concerning. They may still be very young. And I think the most important part of this equation, Cody, is that the team they play on really struggles. Like they're the worst team in the league, or they're one of the worst teams in the league. So sometimes a 30, 35 win team that's like really punchy defensively gives a a huge amount of responsibility to one player on offense. And that falls into what we're talking about. But a lot of times it's teams that aren't even winning 27 games or 21 games in a season. Um, And that leads to controversy. And in this case, Cade Cunningham is one of those players. Paolo Boncaro is the other player. Uh, a lot of you have said, like, why weren't they ranked higher? You guys gave them a raw deal. And um, I want to talk about that, not just with them right now, but also the larger conversation. Because if you go all the way back, like a decade, who can remember that far back? I don't Maybe it was 11, nine years. I have no idea. I wrote a chapter in Thinking Basketball, the book that was connected to this idea, something titled like, Every team has a leading score, right? And so the really key takeaway for me, it's it's a fundamental part of team building, how players fit together, how skill sets work, is that you wouldn't necessarily want the number one scoring option or the number one offensive option on the 30th best team because they have to have one. They have to have a number one option, whether that's Michael Carter-Williams or... Uh, Luka Doncic or whoever, like it has to be a leading scorer on every team. And I think that's kind of what we wanted to bat around today and, and dive into and smoke our smoke our little thinking basketball philosophical cigars on this topic because it turns out it's kind of rich and there's a lot to say about players now and, and in the past. There's a couple different directions that I hope we go today about this topic, but I'm going to state specifically on the primary thing of it all. Because like you said, every team does have a player that has the highest load, that has the most burden, right? That does the most stuff, right? Scoring the most points, getting the most assists, things like that. But I think the tricky part, like you referenced with a couple of those players, both Boncaro and uh, Cade Cunningham, you have these guys that are putting up some nice looking stats, right? We're looking like 20 plus points per game, 
We're looking like a nice, healthy, like seven-ish assists or so. They're getting to the free throw line at least a couple of times. And you look at some of those particular box scores and you're like, yeah, this player's really good. But then you start diving deeper and they're like, oh, wait a second. Why isn't the offense a lot better when he's on the court versus when he's off the court? What's going on with this? And then I think that's the difficult part is parsing out like, who are these guys that are actually putting up these kinds of box scores? And who are the guys that maybe just in a different situation would look a little bit better. So I'm interested to see what direction you take it, uh, because I think there's a lot that uh, I'm interested in investigating today. Well, sticking with the two guys we're talking about, and I think we'll get to them in detail at some point if we don't in the next 30 seconds. Cade's averaging 23 points, seven assists a game. Obviously, all of scoring is at the peak of NBA history. It's never been easier to score. Offenses have never been more efficient. So that's always going to inflate numbers. So when you go back to a different era, a 23-point-per-game score today might be like a 19-point-per-game score, 18-point-per-game score. Seven assists might be like five-and-a-half assists or something like that. So that's something to keep in mind. But to your point, Kate is 23 points, seven assists as as a raw box score guy. We'll get into percentages later. And Boncaro is a little different, but he also has some passing chops, uh, and he's Orlando's leading scorer. And he is averaging uh, 23 points as well and five assists per game. The Magic are much better than the Pistons, but of course the Magic are a defensive team. So I think the place I want to start, Cody, is you started peppering me with questions because I thought last time, uh, when we got off air, Cody asked me a bunch of questions about Cade Cunningham, and it led to this conversation. And I thought you made a great point, which is it's very difficult to take Cade's stats at face value because of the team environment he's playing on, right? On one hand, it gets everyone excited. This is the side that I'm coming from. It gets everyone excited because... He's the leading scorer on a bad team, so he has all the opportunity. He can do whatever he wants. Of course, he's going to average 20 points per game. Of course, he's going to average six or seven assists per game. Cade, it turns out, is a pretty good passer. There's a ton of nuance to get into. But even players historically who aren't great passers, if you give them the ball all the time and tell them to do everything, they're going to average five assists. They might average six assists in today's NBA environment. So you have that. But the flip side is the Pistons have poor spacing, um, I don't know how much trust they have out there with their players. The dynamicism of the partners that Cade could have, like for instance, as a as a lob threat or a pick and pop partner or something, aren't necessarily there for someone who likes to play a lot of pick and roll basketball. So how do you how do you contextualize the stats that on one hand are getting people really excited because he's putting up big raw numbers, but on the other hand, have people like me concerned? Concerns maybe not the right word. Um, I have different thoughts about Cade and Paolo that separate them, although I thought it was fitting that they were drafted pretty close together in our show. But there are, let's say, indicators that right now, at least, Cade Cunningham is not, I'll make up a number, a top 50 player in the league. Because there were some people after the show who were like, Cade is like playing like an all-star. Paolo Bancaro is going to be an all-star, this kind of thing. So why, if you're a top 25 player in the league, why wouldn't you be one of the eight or 10? I don't know what the numbers that people wanted them to be drafted at, but, um, you know, as we said on the show, the difference between the 14th and 18th pick might be meaningless, but these people are clearly coming at it from the perspective of like, come on, you're not, you're not going to take, if you take Scotty Barnes sixth or seventh or wherever he went, why wouldn't you also take Cade there? 
And when we look at the numbers, probably the most concerning thing, you look at on-off numbers, seeing how things adjust a little bit. And we all, like, it's not mean to say the Pistons are not a good basketball team, right? Like, that's just that's just objective. They're not performing very well at all this season. But if you look at how they perform on offense when Kate is on the court versus off the court, um, he improves them by, like, 0.7 points per 100 possessions. Like, it's not any kind of a shift whatsoever. And especially when you see somebody, like, you hear about traditional, like, floor raisers or ceiling raisers or things like that. If you have a floor raiser, a guy that is excellent at having the ball all the time, he's kind of an offense unto himself, you should be seeing much more of a signal here. And even though the team is about three points per 100 possessions better when he's on the court versus off, that offensive signal, I think, is the main thing that bothers, I don't want to say people like you, because it bothers me too, Ben. Like, it it concerns me a little bit when I see a guy that has these kinds of passing chops, that handles the balls this much, and he's just not moving the needle much on offense. But I am also the guy that, uh, so to speak, Speak fell on the sword to take Cade in that draft. And I think there's a conversation at some point to be had about like, he's a, like you said, he's not a top 50 player as a primary. But then the question is, is he a top X player in a different kind of a role? And I think that becomes really difficult to try and parse because when you have Bancaro as well, it's like, well, what if he was in a different role? What if he didn't have to be the lead creator? What if Cade Cunningham wasn't on the Pistons? What if he was uh, the third option on offense or coming in as a, as a sixth man or something like that on, say, like the Celtics? Wouldn't we be seeing different impact numbers? And those are some of the complicating factors to me, especially when I consider somebody like Cade, who when I watch Ben just... I think he's a dazzling passer. I think his passing is is really pretty fantastic. It's the uh, the scoring aspect of the game that really drags him down. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, you might see his passing in a rosier light than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like him as a passer and playmaker. We've talked about that before, but I still think he misses stuff or maybe the larger point is the tempo of his game and the sort of intensity and physicality of his game is not where I want it to be. If you're going to say like, like take a step back because we're going to do our sub all-star episode, our annual sub all-stars in like a month. If you're like a top 40 or 45 NBA player right now, you are incredibly good at basketball. Like you are phenomenal. And that means that in different settings, you can go into the wars of the playoffs against other elite competition and you might hold your own. You might look great. You might have certain teams where you're like, wow, that player is an incredible difference maker. What a game that guy had in game six of the conference finals. I, I just do not watch someone like Cade right now and see that at all. And so there's a tremendous amount of talent. We've talked about it before. I think we both kind of like him going forward. But I, my thing is we're, we're often too quick to just gift that to young players. I mean, we talk about the rookie tax, but this is something a little larger. This is something like the team isn't good. He's still out there. Like, like take what you said about the plus minus. That's actually not that concerning of a signal to me. Um, it's 30-something games played this season. There's a lot of noise in stats like that. It is concerning a little bit because you're like, wait a second, if you're, on, if you're on like the worst team ever and there's no difference when you're on and off the court, um, what does that mean? I think you can make the flip argument that 
his best strength is his playmaking and the decisions he's able to make with the ball. And so not having any good finishers or players or spacers around him really kind of is killing that value. But to me, it's the other stuff with Cade. It's things like turnovers, sloppy passes, um, the defense. The defense, like, I think offensively, he's ahead of a lot of young players. But defensively, Cody, I think in EPM, which is one of our best single numbers that crunches a bunch of stats together and uses plus minus, I think he's like fourth worst in the league or something defensively. The entire NBA considers him a terrible defensive player. And so after our conversation, I went and tried to pull up and just stare at his defensive possessions for a couple games. And again, go back to what I said about like intensity and playoff readiness. He really telescopes on his man. So like if he's if he's on a guy who like likes to run off a screen, he's just staring at that guy. He has no idea what's going on behind him. I threw on a game like the first three possessions. He completely missed a tag on the weak side. He's kind of floating around out there like that. Like he's way bigger than Trey Young, but Zach Lowe used to say Trey Young liked to uh, blow in the breeze like tissue paper on defense. So there's some of that stuff that you just have to adjust to as you play more. And Cade's only played like what, like 90 NBA games or 100 NBA games because he missed so much time with injury. So that's where I I come from. And I think the larger point on my side um, is that people are way too quick to gift these young leading scorers just because they're primary players, just because they have the ball skills, just because they have a jumper or can make a slick pass. They kind of jump the line. They're like, oh, I'd rather have that player than Derek White. And to me, the evidence is so overwhelming against that stance that I would say it's almost untenable for me to, to square that circle. Yeah. I was having some fun playing around with the thinkingbasketball.net uh, database. Always it was fun. Yep. Qu- quite a great database. I had the spreadsheets open. I was tossing down some notes. Uh, really a lot of excellent stuff in there. I was trying to pull some levers because I was trying to find like a nice little heuristic to talk about what we're talking about today. So I sort of settled on, say, like, you know, you have offensive load in the database, which is basically like what percentage of possessions is a player involved with when he's on the court? Is that a fair summary of that stat? Yeah, it's the direct it's the direct influence. So scoring, setting up a, a shot, things like that. Yeah. So I started with like, what if I set it to 45 and looked at every player in the league that's, that has an offensive that's, that's load? That's pretty high. Yeah. Yeah, it is pretty high. But right now in the league, I don't remember how many there were. I think there were about 25, 26 or so players that have an offensive load of 25 or more. Uh, Cade is the least efficient scorer of any of them, and it's really not close. This was a couple days ago, and last I checked, LaMelo Ball was second to last with like a negative two relative off, uh, relative true shooting percentage. Cade's true shooting percentage was four points worse than league average. And this is a guy whose offensive load isn't just 45, it's 50, Ben. He is 10th in the league right now in offensive load. So this is a guy that has the ball pretty much more than anyone besides nine other guys in the league, and he is scoring at a worse efficiency than anyone else that has the ball even close to as much as he does. And you might be wondering, you're like, oh, wait a sec, why does that matter so much? If he's such a good passer, he's such a good creator, whatever else. So I tried to look at this historically, and again, I was just trying to play around with some levers here, and I was looking at, okay, what happens if there are teams that have really not great scorers slash passers versus teams that have really good scorers slash passers, right? And if you look in NBA history, there are 19 player seasons, not counting this season, that have an offensive load over 45, a relative true shooting percentage below zero, 
and a passer rating below six. So I'm not looking at volume at all. I'm literally just looking at efficiency and scoring and passing. Uh, Only 32% of those teams produced an above average offensive rating. A third, just a third of those teams. Okay. And if you look at the the teams that had better than a good offensive rating, so like two points better than league average, it was only 16%. Let's go and look at teams that uh, had a player that was 45 load, a relative true shooting percentage over five, uh, plus five, and a passer rating over eight. So we're talking like titanic, incredible offensive players. Uh, there were 26 players historically, not counting this season. 100% of those teams had an offense that was better than league average. And 92% of them had an offense that was over plus two. And there were even 38% of them that had an offense that was better than plus six. Okay? My point with this is it sounds like people might quibble with it and be like, oh, he's just not making a lot of shots. He's inefficient, whatever else. The team's not very good. But when you look at the historical record, and it sounds reductive to say it, but it's just like the historical evidence shows it. If you have the ball a lot, you have to be able to score efficiently and pass the well if the ball the ball really well if you want your team to have a good offensive rating. And Cade being as below water as he is as a shooter, having the ball as much as he is, I don't know. That's a huge mountain to climb before it's going to get to a point where he can help a team produce a great offensive team. Well, that's the most critical indicator to me uh, because I think in a lot of cases your true shooting percentage can be a reflection of the type of pressure you exert on a defense. It's going to change based on your role and the teammates around you. It's going to change based on your volume. But when I look at Cade, I see a 30, 33% wide open shooter in his career in the league and just under 30% on pull-up threes. But he likes to take those shots a lot. His best shot is probably the mid-ranger, and he's shooting that at 44%, slightly above average for mid-range efficiency, so not terrible, but it is a 44% shot that he's taking a lot in lieu of being efficient on drives. So he can get to the basket. He kind of uses that size, and he's not explosive getting to the basket, but he carves out space and whatnot. Does he get to the free throw line a ton? Not really. Is he effective finishing around the basket? He's lacking burst. He's lacking some of that physicality and intensity that I talked about earlier. Those, to me are actually the bigger signs, along with things like turnovers. We can get into that in a second. Because again, with young players and young guards and young decision makers, that first year or two, and this is for all intents and purposes, his second year at the helm here, there's a ton of fat to trim off in terms of turnovers, decision making, loose balls, lazy passes, just better reads that you'll understand in a year or two. And that's where I go back to this idea of just like, it's dangerous to gift this to young players even in the case of Cade, where we think he might be really good next season. Like, even if we're on the train, and I don't know where I fall, Cody. I don't know where you fall. We picked him pretty high last summer when we were redrafting the last couple drafts. But, like, whether you think he's going to be a top 10 player or merely a top 40 player or something, that trajectory of still having room to grow and expecting him to be better next year and maybe better the year after doesn't mean we should automatically gift him that right now. So I'll stop there because I have a a ton more to get to. But that I think is a big part of the conversation. When we say like, wait a second, why, especially with Cade, like the last month, right? I think he had a big scoring month. Some of all some of these stats were all looking up. I can't just go the guys played 90 games, I should treat him at face value his last 12 games. That's who he is. His last 12 forever, forever and ever Cade will average 29 points a game and make 40% of his threes or whatever. I know you said you have more to say. 
So you tell me if you if you want me to stop this point, because this is where I was going with Cade. Here's my theory of Cade and why I'm actually like fairly high and I'm still. This is why I'm a Cade fan, why I think he could be successful. Um, my thought with him is, like I said, what if he changed his load? What if he's one of these guys who's uh, could be dubbed, uh, dubbed a wrong initiator, a guy that probably shouldn't be like the one that has the ball more than anyone else in the team? And if you brought that offensive load down to say... 40, 38 next to somebody else, I imagine that we could see some kind of a spike. Because look, can, I t- can I bring up a historical player right now, Ben? <laughs> please, that please. I- yes, okay. please. Let me take you back to a land, Ben. Who's it going to be? A world. Back in 1987. Whoa, you went way far. You went too far back. We got to get back in the DeLorean. And- to no. 1987. <laughs> 1987. This and here's the thing. Back. This is a tough conversation to have apples to apples because offensive load has changed so much. Like if you go to the 80s, there's like five guys in the league that have an offensive load over 45. Now I say it's like 25, right? So you kind of have to, you have to adjust a little bit when you're looking at that kind of stuff, okay? There's a guy who is eighth in the league in offensive load. He, uh, he was the only player in the top 16 of offensive load in 1987 with a negative box plus minus. He had a negative 3.5 relative true shooting percentage and a 4.7 pass rating. A guy that's not an efficient scorer and not a particularly good passer. However, Ben... What kind of quiz is is this, Cody? What's going on? (laughs) This is a player, Ben, that in the 90s joined a championship-level team, started for them, and helped them win multiple championships. Because he completely changes his offensive load. This is a guy whose offensive load then drops into the 30s and even high 20s. Do you have any idea of who this guy might be? Does he play for Dallas? He played for uh, he played for the Cavaliers at this point. And then in the 90s, he played for the Chicago Bulls. This is very confusing. Are you talking about Ron Harper? I am talking hey. about Ron Harper. You, so, went, you went so far back in time. But my, my point here is I wanted to reach back to historical precedent. Are there any of these guys that started off, as, as I'm calling right now, as we called on the podcast Sense and Scalability, a wrong initiator, and have they turned themselves into a player that could be a to- good contributor on a, on a championship-level team? And Ron Harper's one of them. There's multiple of these kinds of players, but he's one of the key ones that I thought of. And to me, this is kind of the theory with Cade. Is Cade the defender that Ron Harper is? No. Do I think Cade's going to be a defender that Ron Harper is? I don't think so. But the passing ability, I think that sort of connective tissue on a high-level team could theoretically, especially right now this season, Cade's shooting 40% on wide-open threes. If he can knock down some wide-open shots, if he can pass the ball well, I could see him bringing that load down and being a solid contributing player on a good team. All right, we got to – Cody, let's rein it in. We got to rein it in for a second. We went all the way back to 1987 there. Let's rein it in. There are plenty of examples of that. I think that's part of what makes the future. I don't want to talk about the future, though. I just want to be clear that there's the future and now are very different things. Because mm-hmm. when you look at now, for instance, we're going to talk about turnovers at some point in the near future, probably. I've done a ton of work on turnovers. I did a ton of work on turnovers for the Tyrese Halliburton video uh, over on the NBA app. And um, I have a, a, a category of turnovers called non-passing turnovers okay so that's that's travels and like when you fumble the ball step out of bounds commit an offensive foul things like that 
Charges? Does it count charges? Yes, yes, charges. S- so exactly. a Giannis turnover. A Giannis turnover. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's funny. It's funny you should mention that he's he's uh, near the bottom of the league in uh, non-passing turnovers. But most mm. most big men are going to dominate the bottom of this leaderboard, as you'd imagine. They're less skilled with the ball. That's what we're that's what we're trying to parse out here. Um, so this is like ball handling, as Cody said, offensive fouls, traveling. The the guards that are at the bottom of this list in the league. Jalen Brown is at the bottom of the list for guards. And he has a 7% turnover efficiency the way the way we calculate it at thinkingbasketball.net. 7% mm-hmm. turnover rate on non-passing turnovers. Jordan Poole, Anthony Edwards, Jalen Green, Buddy Heald, Shaden Sharp, Desmond Bain, Paolo Boncaro and Cade Cunningham. That's your bottom ten. Do you do you did you hear any uh, a theme that maybe jumped out from that? Um, is it maybe players that shouldn't necessarily be a uh, high load player? They're, they're all high, young. They're all super young. Oh, that's what they're all sorry. super young. Yeah, they're all the super young. They're all young and trying to do a ton of stuff. And you know, your point your point may be perfectly sound, right? But they are young mm-hmm. and tasked to do these things and getting very loose and sloppy with the ball. And I don't think that's something that's really sustainable. I mean, we've seen that with Jalen Brown in the playoffs. Jalen Brown isn't even necessarily overtaxed. It's just like you get in the playoffs and there's that moment in the 2022 finals where Golden State's like, well, he can't go left hand. He can't go to his left hand. So we're just going to completely shut the water off there. And that's going to be a problem. So to me, those are the larger indicators when I look at young players. And also when I watch young players, just trying to see uh, how tough are they? How physically tough are they? So the Pistons played the Celtics the other day. Celtics still undefeated at home. We have a, a watch-along from last night's game. Watch-along concept we're resurrecting from last night's game where the Celtics and the Timberwolves again went down to the wire and played another great game. Both times this season, the the game has been fantastic. But It's an awesome game. Just the, an awesome game. The Pistons were uh, in Boston and had a lead, had a huge lead going into the second half. Cade had a monster first half. And at some point in the second half, the Celtics just changed their coverage. I can't remember who they put on them or, or what. You and I were texting about it. And I was like, that's it. You didn't hear from Cade the rest of the game. And, 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 and to me, that's not an indictment of him going forward. That's just what happens when you're a young player and you're not out there. Like, I'll give you an example of someone different. Luca, when you watch him when he was younger, he's got counter after counter after counter. John Morant, when we saw him second season, make the leap. I think we did an entire episode about how like I thought that was going to carry over to the playoffs because what are you trying to take away? You're trying to take away his quickness advantage and his change of direction. Good luck. Like There just aren't any athletes in the world that can really do that. Anthony Edwards is the same thing. You saw it in last night's game. Anthony Edwards still has some decision-making kinks to iron out. He still shoots sometimes when he needs to pass. He's got to start reading. You know, the Celtics just started throwing different coverages at him, doubled, switched to double team and things like that. And he didn't do a great job handling it, handling it. And that's something he can improve going forward. But he's so young, Cody. The other thing you can't take away from him is like that first step and that physical advantage. And you saw that down the stretch in the game, getting his jump shot off when he wanted, getting to the basket when there wasn't a double team and he had the space to attack. Um, that's where when I come back to players like evaluating whether it's Jalen Green or, you know, 
the Keldon Johnsons of the world or any, any of these young players, I come back and I turn the film on and I'm like, okay, Cade does not have great burst. His, his superpower is not just blowing by you. Um, it's not even, it's not even too much athletic sort of pop or verve. In fact, the game I turned on yesterday was the one from the other day against the, uh, Denver Nuggets. And I think he got his shot blocked two or three times in the first like quarter or the first half. And every time it felt like Cade was playing at one speed and the Nuggets were like, uh, no, we're playing at the adult level speed. Like we're, we're, I don't know what the junior varsity speed is, but we're just going to take your stuff. So like, it's weird to think of Cade in isolation backing down Jamal Murray and he makes his move over his right shoulder that he probably does with his trainer and his workouts, goes back to the fadeaway on the left shoulder and Jamal Murray, who's smaller than him, inhales his shot with ease. Almost like He, he was almost like, are you really shooting this? Are you really going to shoot this? There's too many of those moments for me. And that's when I think you go full circle and you look at the statistical indicators and you say like, all right, that's the difference between a guy who, as you've said, probably has to play a different role to succeed um, than just saying, hey, we can throw Cade in the playoffs and he's going to be like even a really good 20-point-per-game scorer as a lead initiator. Can you think of anyone off the top of the head that you've scouted before that have shown these kinds of, uh, let's say, issues offensively that were able to blossom into an effective primary? Is there anyone that comes to mind that's really shored up a lot of these skills? that has shored up a lot of the skills. I think, I think a lot of, a lot of players when they're like rookies, I mean, Darren Fox had a really bumpy rookie season, but then you come back the next year and you like, look for, are they play? Is the speed of the game better for them? Is the physicality of the game better for them? Do all of a sudden you start to see the things you saw when they were in college because they've adjusted to the new level. That's, that's, I think there's countless examples of young players who haven't necessarily started off as being incredible like that, but then you see a clear jump in like year two or year three. You know, I'm more interested in the other side of the coin, Cody. I'm more interested in all the players that we've forgotten over the years that were crowned like this, right? And then people just almost forget that they existed. People, People forget that like there were people excited about Jaleel Okafor. They were like, no, you're crazy taking, why would you think Danny Green is better than Jaleel Okafor or something like that, or Tyreek Evans, or Huet Monte Ellis, or if you want to go back, like Ricky Davis, whoever, Brandon Knight. You know, we could just talk about these guys on and on and on, who, especially when you run a statistical filter on them, you see these great raw scoring numbers on really poor teams, and then literally at later points in their career, like the next year, they get to play on better teams and they won't even start. That's the thing. They won't even start because if you, if your defense is really, really leaky and you can't be awesome without the ball, I I, I feel so mean setting that. I, I really want to set up a joke. I really want to set up a joke about a player on the Lakers. Um, I think I've, I think I've numbed it. So the joke doesn't, doesn't hurt as much. You were just kind of talking about D'Angelo Russell at that point, right? D'Angelo Russell was it was selected quote unquote selected as a replacement in the all-star game in Brooklyn a couple years ago. And he certainly had a nice jump that season, but look what happens when you get to a conference finalist, there's this push and pull between how much are you going to have the ball? 
Where are you going to hurt us in different situations? What else can you do when you don't have the ball? And, and D'Lo is not the only player like this. I actually think D'Lo is a decently good overall basketball player. But the the type of examples where this happens over the years um, from players on good teams, from players like what do you what do you do with Antoine Walker? Antoine Walker goes to the Mavs, and he immediately well he's coming off the bench. He's taking touches from Steve Nash. Like it's just a totally different thing. And maybe the ultimate example. In the history of the NBA, if we're going to write a book chapter, we're going to write a corollary, to me is Sharif Abdurrahim, who people absolutely loved, uh, was from an era where you put up the big numbers, you grab eight to 10 boards a game. It's like, if they had Twitter back then, there would be like Sharif Abdurrahim Twitter, I think. And it would just be like, come on, this this dude should make multiple all-star teams. He's 25 and 10 a night. And then the second you put him on a good team, Isaiah Ryder, J.R. Ryder is another player like this. Uh, they, they sometimes don't even start. And to me, that's the big learning and the takeaway is we just have to realize that you need to you need to change the perspective, I think, of how you look at guys on like bottom five offenses or um, to jump to a, a different type of player, Paolo Bancaro, who has things that concern me about his primacy. He's like totally overtasked on Orlando, in my opinion, because Orlando doesn't really have a primary guy. But then knowing that Paolo is the number one pick and watching him make all these decisions with primacy, I that's my least favorite Paolo Bencaro. Like all the other stuff he does, I'm like, okay, this guy, this guy's pretty good. But then when you're like, oh, are you going to be like a Giannis? Are you going to be like a, a LeBron light? Are you going to be able to be huge and make this? It? That's when it falls apart for me. And I get nervous going back to that archetype of like, all right, you got a lot of skill. But if we start teaching you, someone actually had a comment, a question about this, I think, on one of our more recent shows with, with Victor Wembanyama, where I said part of the tax is I'm a little concerned about his shot selection because he kind of, the whole Spurs thing is crazy right now, right? He has the green light to shoot whenever he wants. Um, but I don't think there's great precedent in basketball history for like, hey, in one situation, just take the worst shots possible and treat the game like practice. But then when it actually counts, then play differently. I think you actually have to play and train and practice like you need to do for the game, or in this case, like you need to do, like you need to prepare for the actual playoffs or or championship-level high-quality basketball. Um, So that's where I think it applies across the board with just drilling in bad habits or seeing those things. I don't think you can just gift players like, oh, when Paolo Bencaro plays next to two other all-stars, he will also just make perfect decisions every time. Now, I think we do a good blend of like film study and stats on here, right? But right now I'm going to fall a little bit to the altar of stats, Ben. I'm going to bow down to it More all. stats? We're going back to stats? I'm not going to whip out stats. I'm just going to, to talk about stats and the importance of it because you talk about some of these guys. You brought up some names that are just, you know, I know some people that like, I know a guy that loves Monte Ellis, like loves Monte Ellis. Like if he's if he's listening, he's punching the wall right now. This is a tough beat for him right now. But if you look up the Monte Ellis, you look up Brandon Knight, right? You look up uh, who else? Did you say Tyreek Evans? Okay, oh, man, there's a lot of them. Yeah, all of these guys, and I think you even said like, oh, they have these big box score scoring numbers or whatever else. You look them up. None of them have like a consistent stretch of above average efficiency in scoring. None of them do. Maybe once in a while they'll have a season of doing this, right? And even uh, Sharif Abdul-Rahim, you look him up, he's actually a nicely efficient scorer. 
You look up some of those numbers, you're like, oh, wow, this is a dude that can get you some buckets. This is nice. But the passing side of it, Ben, right? Like, I know people love the, like, this guy's dropping 25 and 8, and rebounds become, like, this really sexy thing to people, even though, you know, that's we might have to revisit that at some other date about rebounding. But, like, the passing game just was not there. And if you're going to have the ball a lot, we just I just threw out all of those numbers, right? You need to be a good passer, and you need to be a good scorer. Okay, and if you have a, like a clear deficiency in one of those, you are severely capping what your team is able to do offensively. And this is the falling to the altar of stats thing. It's a simple enough query to look this up. Like you can look this up, and if you see somebody is so underwater scoring, they just can't be the leader of an excellent team. I'm not saying they can't develop into the into a leader of an excellent offense, but you just cannot have a strong offense especially going into the playoffs if you are so underwater scoring or just not a great passer i'm a little nervous about where you're going with your russell with your westbrook would right like now. a word with you russell, russell westbrook i think is the historical uh counter example of a player i think who's just psychotic rim pressure and and playmaking this sort of like vortex of of playmaking that he created around the basket uh I think bucks that trend probably more than any other player. Yes. Can yes, I, you, can yes. I counter? Cody, yes. You'd like to jump in. Yes. I'm, I'm still, still on my knees up to the God of stats right now, Ben. Okay. Just pulled him up in the historical database, Ben from 2014 to 2017. Russell Westbrook is above average efficiency scoring in every one of those seasons. And beyond that, I think Russell Westbrook is pretty clearly one of the best passers. Like he was an excellent passer at all times as a point guard. I'm not going to say of all time, right? I don't know if that's where you were afraid I was going to go. But he was always an excellent passer. The laydown passes, the kick aheads, again, the rim pressure. So Westbrook was more efficient than a lot of these other guys that we talked about. And the passing game was just leaps and bounds better than any of those other guys. So I still think Westbrook in is in a higher category than some of the other names we threw out. Oh, uh, completely. Did it, did it sound the other way? No, I, my brain doesn't I mean, work statistically, anymore. Did I say no, something the other way? You didn't. I just okay. I don't want to imply okay. that he falls in the same statistical category. His st- his statistical argument is still in a different category than these other guys. Obviously, as a player, he's 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 much better than than these other guys we were talking about. Okay, just to be clear, if you do run inefficient filters, he will be the best player. That that's I'm not saying he's at minus five efficiency during those great years or anything like that. Um, but I did run a query. I did run a mm-hmm. query. Mm-hmm. Yes. Of my a own. lot of them today. Very you you've you've been really on one. I think you've abused your query power. Your your, your <laughs> query card has been taken from you. I have one. I have a single one um, okay. that I wanted to know about because it goes back to this idea of see. I think Cody as a basketball community. I think all the people that hype up the uh, Brandon Knights and Michael Carter Williams and Tyreek Evans and you can go back and read articles and the SI Top 100 and Top 25 under 25. I mean, that stuff only goes back so far because of the uh, sort of youth of the internet and social media, but you can read it and they just love those players and then you never hear from them when it's like turns out that actually if those players don't grow, they were never very good in the first place. So I think there's a logical thing going on where if you can acknowledge that these young players grow, um, when we get to see things put to the test, we can't just assume, Cody, that like all of the good players that started as rookies on bad teams and then became good didn't grow. I think it's safe to say that they grew. And uh, the ones that didn't necessarily grow, I think you get a little bit of a snapshot of, I mean, we could say fool's gold. We could We could come up with all kinds of 
terms for what it is when you're on one of these poor teams. But I listed some players. Here's the query I ran, okay? I wanted to look at scores who were inefficient and also had that kind of like negative impact stat signal. So I used our augmented plus minus stat, which is designed to estimate on-court impact. And I said, you got to be a 22 point per 75 score and negative two true shooting relative to the league. 22 points, negative two. All the players in our database across however far back it goes, thinkingbasketball.net for Patreon subscribers, uh, here were all the players that came up. 2002 Nick Van Exel, rookie Allen Iverson, 1995 Boston Celtics Dominique Wilkins. I know everyone in Boston's excited to hear that one. That was that was a, quite a team. Uh, 2009 Lou Williams, 98 Antoine Walker, Last Legs 2017 Dwayne Wade, Cody Your Friend 2010 Monte Ellis, The Legend of 2018 Dennis Schroeder, 2011 Michael Beasley, 2004 Larry Hughes, Rookie Kevin Durant, 2006 Zach Randolph, Last Season 2016 Kobe Bryant, just out there chucking. Last year, we got Jalen Green and Keldon Johnson. And this year, we have a bunch. And I think we have more this year because the scoring is so juiced up. Maybe it's early in the year. Maybe these guys won't sustain it after 80 games. But Paolo Boncaro is one. Cam Thomas is one. Tyler Hero is one. Kyle Kuzma is one. And Cade Cunningham. That's the list in the whole history of the NBA. And I think, I think to me that's representative of the, the type of player that if you don't become a better shooter, if you don't learn how to finish your drives, if you don't get more free throws, if you aren't better with your turnovers and making good passes, and maybe most importantly, although in Paolo's case, I think he's pretty good defensively, if you don't provide a lot of defensive fight and value and, and understanding of what's going on, it's just hard to be a really good player, especially today with how good the top 40 or 50 players are. And this was my point with the Ron Harper of it all, right? This is a fair, he was a good player, right? No one's going to argue. Like, I think even 1989 or so, some of his impact metrics look pretty solid. He just still doesn't have the primacy he had back in 1987. But do you have, as a player, because we're not giving up on these guys. Like, that's not at all what we're saying. I don't want anyone to get misconstrued and be like, Ben and Cody think that Paolo Bancaro They're going to say that. Cody, They're going to say that. I know. Although, yeah. you're, I think this, you're higher on Bancaro than I am, which is why I was so surprised that I took him in the draft. I thought you were going to take him way before me. I think you took him right after I took Cade, didn't you? I, I don't remember that far back. That was like a week ago. Honestly, if scholars went back and tried to reconstruct our list, I don't know. I don't know if they could do it. It's like the like it's like a lost play in Greek tragedies, like burned in the the fires of Alexandra, basically. Like no one would be able to find it out. Cody, I thought this this show. I can't tell what's going on um, because yeah. my brain's been in the blender all day. <laughs> this show feels negative, and this was we the conversation we had. I thought you were going to pepper me. You're going to pepper me on here. You had all kinds of interesting questions about like when a player is in Cade's situation, you know, what about his passing? If you if you took like LaMelo Ball and stacked him up against Cade, what's the difference? How do you know X? How do you how do you determine Y or Z? I thought you were going to come with all kinds of all kinds of heavy hitting questions like this today. I I mean, I th- I thought I brought some interesting stuff there. No, I mean, did you know, we burn th- that side of the conversation up beforehand? Bef- like 
the thing that actually got us to the podcast? Did we what, light that on fire already? Is that gone into the ether? I don't necessarily know. So, like, what is it that you're trying to say? Like, what is because we took Lamelo a lot higher than these other guys. If I'm not mistaken, Lamelo was a top pick, but then we look at some of the the stats, like we were talking about. He's pretty below water when it comes to the shooting. So again, I guess like the question from that is like, why are we so much higher on LaMelo than Cade, especially when they both seem to have their own defensive inefficiencies, right? So do you think Uh, I'm wrong about something? Yeah, I don't think LaMelo is below water with the shooting. LaMelo is 41% on wide open threes, 35%. I'm talking relative true shooting percentage. Yeah, but he's, he's, Cade's less efficient than he is. And I'm, you know, how much of that from LaMelo is not finishing drives early in the year or things of that nature. But I also think the shooting has to be part of that. That's what I'm saying. I think I think the second you go play somewhere else in today's league and you don't have the ball, your off-ball shooting and your catch-and-shoot and your movement shooting and, and your cutting, you know, like the, the instinctive cuts of LaMelo Ball, I also think he's much better as a passer. I think he plays with way more pace. I think even though they're they're both really young, LaMelo's still so young, I think he's probably a little bit better equipped for the intensity of leveling the game up. I still, where do we get the free LaMelo campaign? How do we get that? Can we pool together to buy the Charlotte Hornets? How does how does that work? I would I would love to go through some, tra- I'm just not a trade machine guy. I don't know where he would go up. Cody, Let me ask you. C- Cody, <laughs> I'm, I'm so not a trade machine guy. I just suggested as a community, we all buy the Charlotte Hornets <laughs> instead of just trading them. <laughs> so we would buy the Charlotte Hornets. I don't know what we would do after that. I think I would just like. I'd trade them. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you something. How do you, I don't want to say no, like epistemologically, I, like, I don't want to get into that, but like, we'll say no just for the sake of anything. How do you identify or know when a high load player should probably pack it in and be a guy that lowers his load as somebody that takes a different role versus a guy that you're like, actually, I'm seeing some indicators I think in the next couple seasons, this dude's going to have some solid primacy on a good offense. What are some of the things that you think you can see between those kinds of uh, those career arcs? We should have started the show with this question. Yeah, but yeah. now we're doing it at the end. Yeah, that's like what we like to do. We like mm-hmm. to do the stuff that's catchy for people at the end after they've already tuned out and said, what are these dudes talking about for the last hour? See, I think there's two big things there. I think one, most players in the world, it's kind of like Formula One driving. There's like 20 Formula One drivers in the world. And then even amongst them, there's still going to be one that's like better than the other one. That's kind of what like the top primacy, if you're like, this guy's going to be a clear number one. And most importantly, he's got to have the ball. We're going to run more stuff through him with the ball. I I think there's like six to 10 guys at any given time. I don't know if that's even the right number. It's a small number, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't love the idea of being like the 16th best number one player and being like, yeah, I'm the 16th best number one player in the league. Run everything through me. I, As you said last time, you will have options and opportunities to run offense. Some of that primacy will be used. But then I start looking at what we just did with LaMelo. And that's part two of the answer, which is what are your shooting indicators like? What do you do when you don't have the basketball? How's your defensive value? How versatile are you as a player in terms of role and in terms of scheme? Can you change the lineups? Can you play with different types of other players? That, to me, becomes a very, very big factor, especially when you're not one of the six or eight best offensive superstar centerpieces in the sport by yourself. 
Let me ask you a player comparison here. Let me see if you think Cade can be six. Now, I know there's an enormous golf defensively, okay? But offensively, Ben, do you think that Cade Cunningham could follow the Jason Kidd trajectory? Is that a player archetype that you think he might be able to emulate? Uh, what are, what are, what are you going with? A non-shooter? Non-shooter, can pass the ball really well, great size. Um, I guess Jason Kidd, it takes him a little while to get the three-point shot down. And then when he does, he goes to the Mavericks and he's able to knock down some shots on a championship level team. But in terms of him being like a primary, I don't know if that's Nets team with Vince Carter even ever had an above average offense. Um, but I, I don't know. They had some good defenses throughout there. Is that kind of the arc we would imagine for somebody like Cade if he continues being a, a primary on a team? I, I don't I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I'm not th- you're I feel like you're really on Cade. I am really on Cade. Yeah, I, I, to me, this conversation has nothing to do with Cade. He's just the latest in a long, long list of players, and he and Paolo are interesting because I actually do, like, like let's let's create a third category. Let's create Jalen Green, who I don't think we drafted, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know how you feel, but Jalen Green is an interesting player to me because mm-hmm. he's got a rocket booster in his butt. He can just go by whoever he wants, and he can jump over whoever he wants, and that means. If he kind of becomes a good shooter and can like be a remotely passable defender, he could be a really interesting scoring jitterbug, six-man offensive juice archetype. And then can you add to that? Can you get better as a passer? Can you get playmaking? Can you learn pick and roll progressions or something like that? He's still pretty young. That might be asking a ton. But I think there's different players that fall into this category as we talked about when we talked about the list of you know, number ones that have been miscast or overrated and fallen off. I mean, Cody, we haven't mentioned the all-time legendary greatest, my favorite player ever, Ricky Davis. What about Ricky Davis, Ben? What about Ricky Davis? Well, I mean, for the most part, Ricky Davis was never on a good basketball team his entire career. Everywhere he went, the team got worse. The team struggled with him on the court. He has some. He has an incredible history of going to a team and the team basically getting worse with him. But when he was younger, I want to say in 2003, the year before LeBron James, you may have heard of him, arrived in Cleveland. Uh, I think he was their leading scorer. He averaged like 20 or 21 points a game, which which for people, for young people listening, in 2003, averaging 21 points a game was like averaging 29 to 31 points a game in 2024. It was a, it was a shocking achievement. Ricky Davis was probably like 14th in the league in scoring that year or something but you demonstrate you can do that and then it gives you a career for the for the next decade or something just based on those chops i think these are all different kinds of players him antoine walker sharif or these modern players we're talking about like boncaro has a legitimate superpower to me he is a super superpower category player now we've talked about how it might be a little shakier than we want which is another thing that has me i think he'll i think he'll get better with the finishing and just having like a monster drive game. But when you turn the film on and you see his, the way he's built and the way basketball is played with the space and his ball handling, you're like, Oh, Oh, he's, he's tough to keep away from the basket. So even amongst these guys we're talking about in 2024, who trip these statistical things, who cause a lot of controversy because 
they put up big numbers or because they were picked so high in the draft or because maybe maybe because all of them, maybe because they put up big numbers or picked so high in the draft and they can throw you some sexy highlights and some big games. Um, there's still all subtle differences between, and this goes back to your, to your question, right? Like, I still want to look at how you play everywhere else. I still want to see the intensity, the decision-making, the motor, the sort of reads, the quote-unquote basketball IQ. That's all the other stuff. Because if you go to a situation where all of a sudden they're like, hey, J.R. Ryder, like Isaiah Ryder, okay? He was a big, I think he was a huge scorer at UNLV in college. And then he was on these terrible teams in the 90s, like the Timberwolves. He, I want to say he played for a Hawks team Played for the Hawks, had all kinds of like off-court things back in the day that that are weird to think about now. Like I think I think he was like caught with a joint or something, and they're like, "You're suspended for a ton of games for that marijuana cigarette." Uh, and then and then he like I don't think he wanted to. I'm trying to remember this. He he didn't want to serve the suspension, so Atlanta got rid of him. Just weird stuff like that. Anyway, he lands on the 2001 Lakers. Right? You may have heard of them, the 2001 Lakers, who had this incredible run in the playoffs. Um, Again, they didn't put him on the playoff roster. Forget not starting. They just didn't put him on the playoff roster. I want to say they took someone like Ty Lue as one of the last guards instead of him, him because Ty Lue is a pesky defender and you can deploy him in certain situations. So when Phil Jackson and that team, Shaq and Kobe and Robert Ory and Rick Fox and all those guys, like when they get down to brass tacks, they're like, well, what are you, our seventh guy, our eighth guy? You might be our 11th guy. But you put him on a terrible team that has nothing going and no one to initiate offense, and he averages 21 points a game. See, I'm more interested, Ben, in some of these guys, the Ron Harpers of the world. There's a guy, actually, that does the other thing. I like seeing these skills where people are able to tamper it down and be very successful on high-level teams. Because I, I think it's just, it's a lot easier. <laughs> it sounds weird to say. It's a lot easier to just be given a lot of shots and not actually be as good as it seems. Right. And I think it's a lot tougher and a lot cooler to see a guy that gets a lot of shots, but then also at some point brings it down and brings a lot of value to a team. I think it's a player you've written about a lot. You've been on a documentary about him before. Um, Benjamin, I think Wilt Chamberlain is really fascinating in this conversation. Mm, mm. Wilt Chamberlain is fascinating because this well, is a guy. He's fascinating in every conversation. But. He's fascinating in every conversation because obviously the primacy we talk about, the 50 points per game whatever else people talk about his passing and stuff. Uh, his best offensive teams he was ever on was when he tamped it down and was like averaging like 12 points a game. Offensive load was like below 20. The passing went up because he focused a lot more on that, that passing part instead of just like, I don't know, I'm going to try and shoot at every possession. And those early 70s Lakers just becomes the best offense he's ever played on, right? And you look at a lot of those early teams he was on when he was shooting a lot, and the offenses just aren't as good. And I can't think of like a better, more illustrative, Ben, an illustrative example as somebody like that that's like, sure, you can do all these things when you have the ball, but what if we actually focus on these other skills and leverage what you can do when you don't have the ball to make us more successful? And I think those are the cool situations uh, that we see. And those are the players that, frankly, get undervalued. Because if Wilt Chamberlain played his entire career like that and his teams were just so much better, no one would talk about Wilt Chamberlain. It's the Draymond Greens of the world. It's the Derek Whites of the world, right? There just isn't respect for a lot of these guys that have the lower offensive loads but still provide massive impact because of all of the other things that they're doing. So uh, in that sense, I think Wilt Chamberlain is just 
just fascinating when it comes to this. Do you have anything else? I feel like we've circled the wagons. Once you get to Will Chamberlain, that's when you know (laughs) you've made it. We talked an hour about this. I actually kind of thought this would be a quick, like, 35-minute podcast, which never seems to be the case. Yeah. If you want to support us, check out patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. That's where we have this season's database, players and teams, and the historical database, and you can run all sorts of fun queries. You can run the reverse query of what Cody, the inverse Cody, and you can get all the players who are like high scoring players and then they get to go to better teams and they get to show you that they can average 12 points a game or come off the bench or just be a a great defensive player, whatever it may be. The Ron Harper corollary, as you like to call it. Yeah. Yeah. So they're, uh, let's end end with a trivia question. Let's end with a trivia question. I like a good trivia question. Okay. So it's in the vein of what we were talking about here. Uh, This is a couple days ago. And as of two days ago, there are two guys in the league right now. Oh, it's current. I thought it was going to be historical. And I was nope. going to answer Dana Barros. I had it lined up. I'm sorry. Up. It's, yeah. <laughs> Dana Barros is not the answer to this. Two guys have an offensive load over 45. Offensive shooting. load over 45. Okay. 5% better than league average. Better. True shooting. Yep. 5% true shooting or better. And uh, passer rating over eight. Who are these two guys in the league? Is Halliburton one? Halliburton is one of them. Okay. Uh, so he's a good passer. Yep. He's a good passer, and he has the ball a lot. Yeah. And he scores quite efficiently. And he scores quite efficiently. Um, boy. Because Luka's never – efficiency is never there. It's not Luka. Yeah. Yeah. I have to be honest, Cody. Yeah. I can't think of any other basketball players right now. <laughs> Nikola Jokic is a basketball player. That's the answer? That's the answer. Oh, okay, it's, okay. It's, it's what was the Jokic. criteria? 45, 45. load, oh, yeah, plus five, and yes. uh, pass rating of eight. Yes. I'll say, you're going to stumble into this one. No, but those were literally this, the only three basketball players I could think <laughs> Joel Embiid, he plays basketball, yeah. too. He, he does. I don't think yeah. the pass rating is that high. But my thing with this, Ben, the Pacers, top 15 of all time in relative offense. Nuggets, like a plus 3.7. It just holds, Ben. If you have the ball a lot, you're an efficient scorer. You're a great passer. I don't care about the volume. Everything else just falls into place. <laughs> uh, well, I hope you enjoyed this one. And uh, as always, thanks thanks for listening all the way through with us to the end in our little post-show. In this, in this case, it was a post-show uh, trivia nugget. And, um, of course, hope you're having a great day.